You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. I'm JR. Hello, I'm Simon. Hi, I'm Matt. Oh God, I'm going to have to actually do an edit now, aren't I, to put those in time with each other? I thought I'd build up suspense. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it just gets it just gets repetitive. You have to. Learn. And you said it in such a way that there, there might have been another person. Yeah. Every episode we do might be the first episode somebody listens to. Yes. So they've never heard it before, and they need to know who's talking. So do you think in that fraction of a millisecond they'll turn off, thinking that that was it for the podcast? <laughs> no, the, the but podcast, in that fraction... The podcast was just you saying, hi, I'm JR, hi, I'm Simon, and that's it for the podcast. No, but they'll turn off thinking somebody's got ideas bigger than his station and wants to build up suspense for himself. I'm, not, I'm doing it, I'm not doing it for our viewer, I'm doing it for myself. myself. For our viewer? <laughs> If they're a bit like A&R men used to be like where they listen to a tape, a demo tape, they only listen to a few seconds. I'm like that with music, actually. I only listen for a few seconds and I turn off. Really? Yeah. I'm really quite ruthless with it. Well, maybe it's like the BBC radio where if there's dead air for too long, it switches into the emergency broadcast because right. it thinks there's been a nuclear attack. Out of curiosity, I don't know whether either of you know this, but the reason why there's never a black screen on Doctor Who, even when they're in a really dark place and why it's quite well lit, is because there are regulations within the BBC and within other broadcasters about how much light needs to be on screen at any given time. Just in case anybody who's flicking through the channels comes across the programme, thinks there's something wrong with the station, and then tunes away again. Oh, wow. So even when there's a scene set in a dark room, it'll always be fairly well lit, Mm. just to make sure that the viewer doesn't think there's something wrong with the picture. Wow. Do you think that... They had a debate about the last episode of Earthshock, whether they were worried that people would think that the sound had gone wrong. Well, no. (laughs) I don't know, possibly, who knows? I don't think so, because he okayed that with them. John Nathan Turner okayed that with the BBC before he did it, I believe. I might be misremembering. But he took it from something, didn't he? I think it was Crossroads or something. Something like that. Coronation Street did it Yeah, something like that. He'd seen it done before and he did it again, didn't he? What was the length of time you can have black on the screen? Is it... So I'm just thinking there were some Warner Brothers cartoons where there's like scenes in cupboards and things like that. Yeah, but you're talking about films that were made for the pictures. Right, okay. And that's different because there's nothing you can do about that. If you're going to show it, you show it as is. But the point is, on their own programming that they make, they won't do it. No. Presumably there was also union issues with it. That you'd imagine the set the set union would have a problem if it was completely pitch black because basically it's radio. <laughs> then I don't that's the sort of thing that the unions would come I'm reading a book about the nineteen eighties mm. and BBC and that's the sort of thing that the unions would have a problem with. I can imagine but then they wouldn't because this other thing was already yeah. in place. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think it was something that would ever come up. But they would have issues with things like how much light mm. there was. Yeah. And they didn't like it when sets had ceilings. Yeah. 
And directors had to fight hard to get sets with ceilings. Or, not... if, they, or if they used the ceiling of the studio. Oh, you weren't allowed to do that. Because no. that's, that's the domain of the electricians and not the set yeah. designers. Uh, Paul Joyce got in trouble for Warriors Gate because he showed the studio lights. Mm -hmm. And then they did it again later in the 80s, didn't they? And they got away with it. Not great a show because it's famously not in a studio. No, I can't remember which one it was. There was one later in the 80s. I'm sure of it. No, Battlefield was... uh, I don't know, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. Battlefield was the one with the water tank, so I don't suppose it was that. I can't remember what it was. Anyway, I ought to say we're back sooner than we said we were going to be because less than 48 hours before my operation was due to happen, I got a phone call telling me it was postponed for a month. So here we are, still in August, and if there's a break, it'll probably now take place in September. Um, But the subject for tonight is going to be... We're going to go back to the story arc ones we were doing. So we're going to look at the Matt Smith era story arcs and then probably next week or the week after, we'll do the Peter Capaldi story arcs. Obviously, obviously, this is all ground that we've sort of covered, but we've not covered in quite this way, so it's worth doing. Um, before we start, I've got a couple of film reviews to do from the magazine and another edition of Logan's Look. Looking at the first half if, of season 19, or the second half of season 19, which is it? He's already covered... Yes, he's done the first half, hasn't he? Because he did... Um, uh, Kinder he did and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, visitation, yes. So it's the second half. And then at the end of the podcast, we've got another couple of film reviews, but we'll save them to the end in case people haven't seen the films yet. Um, Logan on Black Orchid. <clears throat> it was really good how the Doctor helped his cricket team to win, but it was confusing <laughs> how Nyssa and Anne looked identical. It was annoying how you only got to see George's legs for most of the story and not his face, while the Brazilian's lip was weird. It was annoying that the Doctor got lost in the secret passages, and it was bad that the Doctor was arrested for murder as he didn't do it. Seems to have been either annoyed or (laughs) a lot of that, doesn't he? George was smart to make a fire to escape from the locked room. Score, 5 out of 10. Earthshark. Mm Hmm. The androids in the caves were scary. It was good that the Cybermen were back because we hadn't seen them in ages and it was a big surprise to see them at the end of episode one. It was good to see see some of the old Doctors in the clips the Cybermen played. I like the Cybermen because they are strong and look good. I am sad that Adric died. I would have preferred him to have escaped in the escape craft. I liked Adric because he was a good companion. Score... Four and a half out of ten. It would have been seven out of ten, but that ending was upsetting as Adric is my favourite companion. (laughs) Time flight. It was good that the master was back, and I liked how he was pretending to be Khalid. It was gross when Khalid fell over and green goo came out of his nose. I liked all the planes in the story, and I expected that Tegan would stay behind in episode one because the Doctor had finally got her back home again. It was weird how they travelled so far back in time. Score, 7 out of 10. So, says Dad, Adrian Sturrock, for season 19, Logan's favourite story was a tie between Kinder and Time Flight, while his least favourite story was Earthshock, although this was because Adric went splat. Otherwise, his least favourite story was Black Orchid. My favourite story from the season is Earthshock, because Adric went splat. (laughs) Just joking. (laughs) 
Very closely followed by Kinder, with Time Flight a very distant last. For three out of four seasons now, my favourite of the season has been Logan's least favourite of the season. At this rate, he is going to have Twin Dilemma as his favourite of season 21, with Caves of Androzani as his least favourite. And that was uh, <coughs> Logan's look on the second half of season 19. Mm. Oh. It's great how kids see things differently from ours, isn't it? The Brazilian's lip. There's, yes. a, there's a pub name. A pub's name? <laughs> Can you imagine the pub football team or darts team or something? <laughs> I know. <coughs> Um, films. I said I was going to talk more about Flesh and Blood, but I really did that last time. So, you know, Paul Verhoeven's first English language film is outrageous. It's not his best film by any stretch of the imagination, but it's still worth seeing. Two films then. One, Apprentice to Murder, which is a, oh, 80s or early 90s. Written by, or co-written by the guy who wrote Don't Look Now and starring Donald Sutherland. So this is sort of promoted as a sort of horror film mm. in the same way as something like The Wicker Man would be a horror film. But it's not. It's about, it's set in Pennsylvania, Dutch Pennsylvania. So amongst like the Amish in 1910 or 20. And he, Donald Sutherland plays what's called a powwow, which is a religious doctor, which is somebody who comes and heals you by saying good words over you, essentially. You know the kind of thing? So he doesn't heal you, though? Well, no, but if they get lucky, you get better. Yeah. And then people think that religion's done it instead of medicine. Okay. So then you've got um, Rob Lowe's brother, Chad, <laughs> as um, this young lad... He's actually not too bad. He's actually the opening couple of scenes are absolutely terrible. And you think, oh my God, this is going to be one of the worst things I've ever seen. But after that, it settles down. He plays a young lad of about 16 who actually this is never mentioned and it's not in the script. And I don't know if it would have been a thing at the time the film was made, but it's patently obvious from the way he behaves that he's autistic. So he's got this girl played by Mia Sara from... Uh, legend and Ferris Bueller mm -hmm. who fancies him he has no interest in her but living in the same boarding house that she lives in is Donald Sutherland's powwow so Chad Lowe falls in with this guy and basically it's like this really low-key character thing not an especially good one about this kid and his relationship with this man and his relationship with this girl and how this man kind of takes him on. But it's based on a true story from a court case back in, whenever it was, 1910 or whatever, from this powwow and his young apprentice who actually ended up killing somebody because they thought this person was inhabited by the devil. So it tells a sort of true story. But sadly, instead of leaving it ambiguous... Well, no, I say sadly, instead of leaving it ambiguous, there's a couple of scenes where it becomes not ambiguous. But then, at the end of the film, it's explained that you're seeing these scenes from Donald Sutherland's character's point of view. Mm. But it really upsets the balance of what's not an especially good film anyway. It was okay. It was quite absorbing, but it wasn't especially good. Um, but if you're interested in things like The Wicker Man and that sort of 
rustic horror. It's worth a look. And the other film is Francois Ozon's latest but one, actually, that's just coming out on Blu-ray and DVD, which is L'Amant Double, or Double Lover in America, which is basically Ozon's answer to Vertigo. So it's essentially got all the same sort of elements as Vertigo, but um, put together in a sort of modern French style. So it's like this really chic, elegant, cool, languid, Gallic version of Basic Instinct, essentially. Uh, It's about this woman who's having stomach problems. She goes to the doctors. They say, well, there's nothing medically wrong with you, so we'll send you to a psychiatrist instead. So she goes to the psychiatrist and falls in love. And so because she falls in love, she's got the right pheromones going around her body and her stomach problem clears up. And so uh, he signs her off because he's in love with her too. And uh, then they end up moving in together. And then she starts seeing his double which is essentially vertigo, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, except sort of obviously the inverse of vertigo. Dead ringers. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, sort of covering some sort of similar territory mm-hmm. to that. The thing is, it's supposed to be one of those psychological dramas where at the end of the film, when you find out what it was about, you're supposed to reassess everything. But actually, the end of the film, if you treat the end of the film as the one piece of true factual information, then the rest of the film can't exist. Because the one piece of factual information they give you at the end, like, means that nothing else in the film could possibly have happened. Right. So you're kind of left in a situation. I mean, I'm not, I'm sure I'm not misreading this, because I finished watching it and I sat there and thought about it for like, I don't know. 12 hours before I wrote the review thinking, am I wrong about this? But I'm not. At the end of the film, there's no way the rest of the film could possibly have existed. So it's a really absorbing film for about an hour and a half. And then the last 10 minutes, I don't know what they were thinking when they made it. The way it resolves itself just means the rest of it can't possibly have happened. It's really, really strange way to end a film. You have to watch it. Yeah, it's just... I can't, I'm obviously not going to say what it was in case no. people do. And I would recommend it because it's yeah. a good film. But I just cannot get past the fact that at the end of the film you're essentially given a piece of information that all the relationships she forms, all the things that happen, right back to the very first scene, you get to the end of the film and none of those things could possibly have happened if the stuff you're told at the end of the film is true. It was just really, really strange. So it's one of those things that's supposed to be kind of vertigo, sort of, I don't know, I suppose a little bit Alice in Wonderland, because she's on this weird psychological journey. Mm. And it is great up until about the last 10 minutes. But it's also the most gynecological film I've ever seen. (laughs) So anybody who has sort of a... uh, you know, he's not likely to be able to stomach that stuff easily. Vaginophobics. Well, no, not even vaginophobic. There's a, well, there's a bit where there is a, well, it's not revealing too much to say part of the topic of the film is about pregnancy. Mm. And there's a bit where maybe she did or maybe she didn't get pregnant. But we actually 
follow the journey the sperm would make from all the way from the outside of the vagina to the ovaries. Uh, it's one of those things where you just go, what? Did you really need to see that? Mm. Especially given what then happens at the end of the film where, no, you really didn't need to see that. It's very strange. <clears throat> Shall we move on? <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> well, it's Welcome just... to the Blue Box Podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this yeah, is we very much the Blue all Box the way Podcast. The entrance to the ovaries. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but it's like... Journey, I'll ta- journey to the centre? No. no. I'll, ta- I'll give you a little clue about how metatextual Francois Ozon is. Because he did he's, this... He's only just got out. Well, no, he did this knowing who his actress was going to be. Mm. But his actress is somebody he's worked with before. And she used to be a model. Well, she still is a model. And she models for a company called Chloe. So in the film, he makes a, a model whose name is Chloe. Okay. So mm. that's kind of just an example of where exactly his head's at when he's making this movie. Should we talk about Matt Smith then? Okay. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's go the... all the way from the entrance of Matt Smith. <laughs> <laughs> from the... <laughs> to his exit. Yeah. Oh, God, that's a journey and a half, isn't it? Oh, speaking <laughs> of which, Blur, did you ever see them on that British version of Roller Coaster? What? Blur? Do you remember Roller Coaster, the big American tour thing where you'd have like four big name rock bands and they'd do a tour together? Oh, okay, yeah. So yeah. it was like a sort of, it was like halfway between a festival and a concert mm. and you'd actually get four headline bands all playing together. Mm. And the, they did a British version of it and I I think there was hoping, they were hoping to set it up as a kind of regular thing because Roller Coaster was an annual thing and it would be four different bands each time. In Britain, I can't remember what they called it. The first one they did, I think, was the only one they did. But yeah. It was Blur, Suede, The Divine Comedy, and a fourth band, I can't remember. Right. But they all went out, and they, I think they played Blur was their top last mm. playing act, mm. but you had basically four headline acts all going out together. But this was when Blur were between um, Leisure and modern life this is, is modern life is rubbish. Yeah. And do you remember what happened with Blur then? They recorded well, their second album and then scrapped it and started from scratch. Yes. Yeah. Because they had a big, well, this big crisis of confidence. Yeah, yeah. And this tour took place during their crisis of confidence. Okay. So they were in a really weird headspace, mm. and so they went out on this tour, headlining it, and they were just really angry all the time mm. and you could tell that by the way they were playing these songs and they were playing songs that would end up on Modern Life is Rubbish but it was just they were just kind of this odd sort of furious but sort of in a really sort of neutered way because their songs don't really lend themselves to it so mm. it's a really mm. strange thing to see but during the course of the evening they played a video during one of the songs mm. and I don't know whether this was supposed to promote vegetarianism or what but it was the journey food takes. So it was a cow, mm. and then a cow going to the slaughterhouse, mm. and then a cow being slaughtered, and then the body being cut up, and then the meat being put through a grinder to turn it into mince, and then being packaged, and then turning up in a supermarket, and then being bought, then being taken home, and then cooked, and then eaten, and then shat out of somebody's ass. 
and they showed the entire film in reverse. So the very first shot you get of the film is of this shit jumping up out of a toilet and squeezing itself into somebody's backside. And it was just, what on earth were they doing? So we were talking about Matt Smith when JR said speaking about which. Yeah. Uh, Just as I was trying to make the connection, but you're actually making a connection between Francois Roson, aren't you? Uh, No, because Simon said something even after that. Oh, the journey to... Okay, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was just trying to make sense of the... the, Was that during a particular song, was it? Um, It was during... It was during one of the ones from Modern Life, and I think it was one of the ones that was actually out as a single by then. Mm. So for tomorrow or Chemical World? It was for tomorrow, I think. If I remember rightly, I think it was on for tomorrow. Okay, I could be wrong. It was a very strange thing to see, and the entire audience just turned away. Mm. Yeah, I seem to remember that was a quite an interesting bit during um, Alex James's book. Yeah, bit of a blur. Yeah, I can imagine. It I can be. imagine Blur and Suede being on the same bill as well. I imagine that was quite well, this a, was a lot of personal whole, stuff going on there. And it was before the whole Justine Frischman thing, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Yes, they wouldn't have been on the same bill after, would they? Would Elastica have been in that fourth band? Um, Which is, it seems I don't odd. think Divine it was. Divine Comedy slot, slotted in there, isn't it? It's an odd mix. Yeah, but then the American ones were slightly odd as well, because it would be... The American ones would be people like, I don't know, I couldn't swear to it, people like the Chili Peppers, mm. but they wouldn't all necessarily be bands quite like that. But there was, theirs was more of a sort of slightly slanted towards metal, mm. whereas the British one was slanted towards indie, so that's where Divine Comedy comes into the equation. Are we going to actually talk about Matt Smith? <laughs> I can do. <laughs> all right, we talked about story arcs in the classic series mm-hmm. and how there wasn't a thing where there would be story arcs. So if story arcs turned up, that would basically be because you had a writer who was more interested in doing something than maybe the last one or the next one who weren't. And then we talked about Russell T. Davis. And Russell T. Davis essentially had a sort of a template for doing the story arc, didn't he? He He had the word or the uh, thing that would turn up in the finale that he was foreshadowing. And then at the same time, he would try and tell a story about the companion too. So you'd have two things going on that were sort of separate from Mm -hmm. each other in a way. So then when we come to Stephen Moffat, because a lot of what Stephen Moffat does is kind of in response to Russell T. Davis, isn't it? So you've got series five. So you're expecting to see a story arc where there's a word or a symbol or something that's going to turn up in the finale and a story to do with a companion. But what he kind of does is, although he will go on and do that, he does a few things to sort of wrong foot you and put you off the scent. And then he throws in a few things. Russell T. Davis would have things like, in series one, you'd get to see Satellite 5 halfway through the series, not realising that you were going to see it at the end. So Russell T. Davis would throw in things to wrong-foot you, and Stephen Moffat does it in an entirely different way. So when it comes to the companion to Amy, Mm. normally you'd have somebody like Rose, who's a complete innocent at the start of the first episode, and meets the Doctor during the first episode, 
and then has a progression until the last episode. But Stephen Moffat throws in about 10 times as much progression as you'd normally get in the opening scenes of the first episode, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. So by the time the companion, as we will have her for the rest of the series, joins forces with the Doctor, sort of a third of the way into the 11th hour or whatever, that companion's already had a lifetime of being the Doctor's companion, except the Doctor didn't come back. Yeah. So she didn't actually get to be the companion at all. Except, of course, then at the end of the series, she does get to come back and do companion-type things at the age she was at the start of the story. So already Stephen Moffat's doing the same thing, but different. So his so Stephen Moffat's version of the word Torchwood or the word Bad Wolf is is a kind of conceptual thing, which is Amy's perception. And Amy's perception includes Amy's memories of the Doctor, which means it has to yes, be her childhood yes. spent with the Doctor's memories, but also Amy's perception of the Doctor in the time of angels, which is different from from our perception. And then that's the revelation, Amy's perception of Rory mm. well, the more coming and going, thing. Amy's memory of Rory. So it's all about Amy's memories. Well, the, yeah, but the more important thing is these are the memories she has before she actually then meets him. Because when she then meets him as a 19 or 21-year-old or whatever, it, it's 19, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. She's 12, 19 and 21 when she leaves at the end of the episode. So she's yeah. 19. Yeah, 19 when she meets him. So all the stuff, yeah. But it's a combination. It's a combination. So it's yeah. that's that's what that's what forms the climax of the se- the season is the me- the memories of her being used of her needing the doctor or or longing for the doctor to come back. She draws on that memory of childhood. Well, that's what but, the but it's also the the reminder for her to do that is seeded through the series. But there's also the thing with the monsters. And this is Stephen Moffat doing his I'm going to tell you the answer before you Mm. see the answer thing. So the way she solves the puzzle at the end or solves the the thing that needs doing at the end is by using those memories to bring the Doctor back, right? Yeah. But it's those memories because the monsters have been to her bedroom and seen all the things that she's got on her walls and her cupboards and her sideboards and that. Yeah. That enable them to capture him in the first place. Yes. So the thing that solves the problem in the story at the end is the thing that causes the problem in the story at the end. But it's also, and that's classic Stephen Moffat. But this kind of memory of the Doctor is almost... It's kind of a metatextual thing because I think Stephen Moffat, when he... He's talking about fans. Well, he's but he's also talking about what he needs to do with the series because he knows he's picked it up from Russell T. Davis and Russell T. Davis... Has a way of... Has, has developed the Doctor to the point where the Doctor is... Famous, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so there's no way because unlike the original series where you can kind of have the dark invasion of Earth or you can have something happen and it's just forgotten the next story. You can't in do the that, modern series. Yeah, yeah. We're slightly more sophisticated and it's more people are watching. So by the end of Russell T Davis, there's no way you can set a story on the Earth in the modern times without people knowing who the Doctor is or without people knowing who the Daleks. Are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's about Stephen Moffat knowing that he has to wipe the memory of the Doctor or re, yeah. from the fictional the universe button. that he's created. Yeah. So it's this it's all about the reset button. So it's about Amy remembering and the rest of the universe forgetting. Forgetting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And kind of and kind of it's also about us 
forgetting because what Stephen Moffat wants to do, which we suspect Chris Chibnall's going to do just naturally, is Stephen Moffat really wants a big reset, but doesn't feel like he can do it just without without explaining it somehow in the narrative. Possibly because at that point Doctor Who was at its most popular. It was at its peak yeah. ever. Yeah. So you can't just suddenly suddenly dump it all. So so this is a kind of a process. So it's using a story arc as a way of slowly building towards a reboot, which happens in the next season. Anyway, you've completely jumped ahead of... Oh, okay. I was only going to talk about the different elements that bring us there as well. Okay. For instance, like, I mean, we've talked about all this, so we can skip over it briefly, mm. but where Russell T. Davis might show you Satellite 5 and you wouldn't know necessarily that it was important until you get to the end of the series, mm. or the Cybermen on the alternative Earth in the second season he did, then you've got Stephen Moffat doing something like bringing the cracks in mm-hmm. in the angel two-parter mm-hmm. and actually using them to solve the story yeah but 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 there, there were two slightly more interesting things that he does and one of them is he gives you something in every story and actually in a lot of those stories it's the same thing he gives you it's just you don't realize that he's doing it mm. he's preempting the series landing on a choice that amy has to make a memory yeah. that she has to dredge up by making about half the story is about choices that Amy has to make. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's the episode Amy's Choice, mm-hmm. but the most important one early, well, Beast Below is all about a choice that Amy has to make as well, of course, because mm-hmm. she has to do the voting thing, right? And it yeah. revolves around that. Victory of the Daleks. At the end of Victory of the Daleks, you get a situation where you've got an alien who's um, sort of central to making sure everything either stays fixed or gets wrecked. And we're talking about the robot that the Daleks have put in as um, Churchill's right-hand man here, Bill Patterson's character. Mm -hmm. And Amy fixes him by talking him out of it. Yeah. Which is essentially foreshadowing how Amy fixes the Doctor by remembering him. Because it's a... a, I was only going to say, because it's not a mechanical thing that Amy does but a psychological thing that Amy does that solves an alien either being there or not but there's also it's also that's true but there's also a, a kind of a running theme of characters who have forgotten their yes, past yes, so, yes, th- yeah. so that the robot in victory of the Daleks whatever his name is yeah he he has false memories of yeah things. yeah yeah and Amy's choice they can't yes yes, they, yes she's pregnant and they can't decide which is which memories are real? Or the beast below is about an entire nation that's forgotten, yeah. Will, forgotten. willfully forgotten, mm. and you can probably see it into even the Silurian story. Yeah, is yeah, a, yeah. Is about uh, a world that's forgotten its original inhabitants and even buried it underneath the ground. And even Vincent and the Doctor, you've got an invisible alien and a man who doesn't know if the things he sees are real or in his imagination. Yeah. And doesn't know his own worth. Yeah, and he yeah. finds that out when he visits the future, where the memory, the cultural memory of Vincent van Gogh yeah, has, become, yeah. has reached its fruition. And Just you can see that. The cultural that. memory of the Doctor has yeah. at yeah. the very start and very end of the series. The other thing I was going to bring up is um, you've got interesting things like, I think people misunderstood this at first, and I think, and I think we've talked about it before, and I think it's a slight error in the writing in that the way it's written allows you to misunderstand it and then 
because the writing didn't realise that that's what it was allowing you to do. It doesn't repair the damage. So the way the cracks work, Mm. the first couple of times you see the cracks, they're stealing people through the cracks and wiping the memories of those people from the people left behind. Mm -hmm. But the cracks are just wormholes. And what's on the other side of the wormhole is the important thing, and it's a different thing each time. So actually, the first crack we see has got the prisoner on the other side. Mm. Mm. But then there's a crack in Amy's bedroom, and the prisoner escapes. But the crack in Amy's bedroom also steals Amy's parents, and she forgets they even exist, right? Yeah. Which is then what happens in the time of angels. Yeah. And that's why... And that becomes bedded in in people's expectations as Mm. how the cracks work and what they do. Mm -hmm. But of course, by the end of the series, we've seen the cracks working in all sorts of different ways. And then we see the cracks again in um, Time of the Doctor. Yeah. Again, working in slightly different ways. So the way I understand it is that it's not the crack that's doing that, but it's what's on the other side of the crack that's doing that. And if the particular crack that you've got doesn't have that thing on the other side of it, then it's not going to be doing that. But I don't think the stories explain that well enough. And so there's slight confusion about mm. what the cracks are and what they do. So you mean do. that the crack in Time of the Doctor is a different crack from the crack in, yeah. in The Eleventh mm. Hour? It's not caused by the, that well, it's the caused... particular exploding TARDIS, but it's caused by... No, I think it the is. Time Lords. I think okay, it's caused by the... exploited that... that but, but I just think that the exploding TARDIS causes cracks right. in time okay. and space, plural... Okay. Yeah, and essentially these are they're cracks in time and space. So essentially they're openings into the vortex, yeah, or whatever. But at the other end of that tunnel, that wormhole, that whatever, mm. it's not always going to be the same thing. Okay. I, that's how I understand it, and I think Time of the Doctor makes that explicit. But yeah. I think that's way too late to make that explicit. And I think that was Stephen Moffat's error in series five, is they didn't delineate what the cracks do, what they are. I mean, maybe the distance between Time of the Doctor and the Big Bang is such that he didn't need to do that. He just... No, no, that's right. just had this visual... He didn't. visual crack, so he can just do what he wants with it. Well, yeah, he didn't need to do it by the time of the Time of the Doctor, but I think he ought to have done it at some point in Series 5. Yeah. Because when you get that last scene in Vampires of Venice... Mm which feels contradictory after what you've seen the cracks doing in the very previous episode, Flesh and Stone. So at the end of um, so at the end of um, Vampires of Venice, it's the other end of the crack that's gone quiet that they're talking about. Okay. I can't remember. No, I can't remember. At the end of Vampires of Venice, yeah. the vampire fish are talking about having been sucked through the crack and deposited on our world, right? Okay. Okay. Into the water in Venice, right. and they say at the other end of the crack, everything went silent. Right. And then we get that weird directorial thing where the director turns the soundtrack off, which is supposed to not be literal. That's just for the audience's right. benefit, to yeah. make, so that they can feel what the vampire fish feel. But because it, it is actually happening on the screen, it feels like it's a literal moment, and so it's just. But it's also it, possibly a sign that. They they had a cool phrase, which is silence has fallen, yeah. silence will fall. Yeah, and yeah, they hadn't yeah. quite worked out what silence meant at that point. And it's only later they realised that silence could be a thing rather than... Well, no, I think he knew because I think... Well, I, I think he had a good idea because okay. I don't think he would have done the end of Series 5 and the start of Series 6 the way he did unless he right. knew where that was heading. 
Okay. So I, I think he has a basic idea. I always think. But I, I always think he's almost smarter than that. That that he can leave things up, opening for himself, and then he can kind of make things up in such a way that it looks as though he's. Well, I he's think had the plan all the time. I think he had to know what he was going to do, even if right. he didn't know who he was going to do it with. Okay. So even if he didn't know what the silence were, mm. I think he knew where that story was going. Because the start of Series 6 does solve the end of Series 5. Yeah. Um, although most people missed it because they weren't expecting it to happen then and because it doesn't get spelled out. Right. This is the thing with Stephen Moffat. Sometimes he spells things out, sometimes he doesn't. Mm. So when he spells things out, it all seems a bit too obvious because that's one of the great things about Stephen Moffat's stories is that you have to add it up in, in your own head. Mm. You don't very often get Christopher Eccleston turning to camera and saying, oh, the child's the girl's <laughs> son. That's why he's calling for his mummy. And, you know, mm. you don't very often get that with Stephen Moffat. So some of the things about his stories are confusing. The cracks being one example... But then the resolution to that story being another. Because the way that series finishes is with the TARDIS exploding. Mm. And it feels satisfying because he, because he uh, resolves the TARDIS exploding. Mm. But then there's no explanation for why it exploded. Yeah. And this is the thing with Stephen Moffat. He doesn't tell you what the explanations are. He tells you what happens... He resolves the sort of physical, mechanical part of what happens. But he leaves it for you to work out why for yourselves. And he usually leaves a trail of clues, but he doesn't actually have a a character turning to camera or whatever, you know, I'm exaggerating Mm -hmm. when I say that, and telling you, and this is the reason. Mm -hmm. So then the Series 6 arc, is about the silence and about them making River Song an assassin to kill the Doctor and about their plot to kill the Doctor. And there are obviously more than one attempt because they have to do the um, whole Lake Silencio thing because their previous attempt had failed. Mm-hmm. So the previous attempt must therefore be the exploding TARDIS at the end of the Big Bang. And this is where the weird timey-wimey thing comes in because the way I read it because they're talking about the reason they need to kill the Doctor is because the Doctor's going to destroy the universe Mm. but the way I read it is so the Doctor and the TARDIS are synonymous with one another Mm. so it's actually the TARDIS that would have killed the universe because of it exploding but the Silence don't realise that it's the TARDIS that would have done that had the Doctor not reset the universe. So you're left with a bunch of reset silence in Series 6 who don't have the knowledge that the silence in Series 5 would have had had they survived it. But in Series 5, by the time you get to the silent... or by the time you get to the modern-day stuff at the end, the Lodger and the Big Bang, Mm. which is set in modern times as opposed to the Pandorica Opens, which is set in... uh, Roman times, the silence are all wiped out because they get wiped out in the 1960s. So the silence at the start of Series 6 don't have the knowledge that the silence would have had at the end of Series 5 had they not been wiped out in the 1960s as they are at the start of Series 6. It's a paradox. 
is what I'm saying. Or, I'm not saying no, that's no, definitive. I'm, no, I, I'm I, saying I, that's my understanding. I wondered whether it. it was explained in time of the Doctor because the Doctor, the Doctor does run the risk of destroying the universe by bringing the Time Lords back. That was the point of Time of the Doctor. That the well, time, and that was what the silence were trying to prevent, was the destruction of the universe by bringing the Time Lords back and the Time War to be reignited. <laughs> and that's the end of the universe. Oh, fair about. enough, yeah. So I think that was the... Uh, but I think if you don't go... Because that's Stephen Moffat dotting I's and crossing T's. Yeah. And I think a lot of the stuff he does in Time of the Doctor is dotting I's and crossing T's for people who are left confused by what he did in Series 5 and Series 6. Okay. But I think Series 5 and Series 6 are self-contained and explanatory if you follow the clues. Yeah. Possibly, and, but maybe because people didn't and it was obvious that people didn't, then well, maybe he came up with an alternative. That, that's what I mean. Okay. He has this habit of if you've ever seen his production notes or read interviews with him, mm. he has habits or he has a habit of um A wanting to leave things open for people in their own imagination, but also B for people who uh, might sound condescending, it's not meant to, for people who don't have the imagination to want to make things up for themselves, he has a habit of dotting I's and crossing T's in ways that still leave it open for people who do, mm. if you know what I mean. So he'll he'll say something in an interview that patently isn't true. Like um, Amy's pregnancy. Mm. He'll say, well, obviously she got pregnant before the stories in America. When actually, or no, the bit where she's kidnapped. He'll say she was kidnapped. He said in an interview in Doctor Who magazine, she was kidnapped before the adventure in America. Right. But actually, if you look at what's on screen, it's patently obvious that she's kidnapped halfway through that story between the two episodes mm -hmm. because she's pregnant in the first one and she's not pregnant in the second one because in the second one it's the gang of Amy, right? Mm. And that's... But it's never said on screen that that's where it happens. But if you follow the line of clues, that's where she's kidnapped between the two episodes. So she's kidnapped somewhere in America. But in an interview, Stephen Moffat will throw it away and say, no, she's kidnapped before the series starts. Okay. For the people who don't follow the clues to... But you know, see what I'm saying? Stephen Moffat has this habit of... And rule one, the Doctor lies. Rule two, Stephen Moffat lies. Goes for retrospectively as well as looking forwards, if you ask me. But it's a thing about his writing, like yeah. I was saying just now. You have to make certain things add up for yourself. So the series six story arc which we basically did all of series six and the only question that was really left at the end of that was why and like i say or like i've said before on other podcasts i think stephen moffat always answers his questions before he asks them so if you want to know why the silence and madame Coverian are doing what they're doing by the end of series six which is essentially lake silencio when mm. we get to actually see it in full, then you've got to look back earlier in the season to see why they're doing it. And I don't know, to me, I think it's a paradox that he sets up around the last episode in series five, because okay. I think the two series are tied together. Okay. And I mean, there were, I had more, I had more clues, but I didn't make a list no. that I should have I brought along because I never do. For, for me, it's that I think he left a few mm. threads from that series. 
and they're, they're normally the threads you can tell that they're threads that you left because there are sort of ominous sayings or or things. But I tell and you what the moment is mm. that convinces me is when he decides to put the silent spaceship in Gareth Roberts the lodger. Right. Because that's that spaceship then is abandoned. Yeah. And that is in the modern day. And then when we go to Day of the Moon, mm. the silence are destroyed in the 1960s, yeah. leaving their spaceships behind mm-hmm. to survive to the modern day. Yeah. And I think at the point he realises where that's what he's going to do at the end of Day of the Moon, he quickly says to Gareth Roberts, I need you to do this at the end of your story. Yeah. And I think that is the clue to tie the story together. Yeah. I don't think putting that silent spaceship there in the lodger is just a throwaway thing. Alter- I don't think it can be. It's too close to all these other Alter- episodes. Alternatively, they had a an alien spaceship set in the lodger that they built and they just decided to keep it and he retrofitted it narratively to make no, it because, story. No, because story. this was a very late last-minute addition to Gareth Roberts' story, which had right. a completely different ending. And he said, no, do this. Yeah. As um, the finale for series five is going into production, right. and as he's writing the first two episodes of series six, yes. this is all happening at the time the change in the lodger takes place. Right. Yeah. So the I is to my mind, it's a clue. Okay. It has to be. There's no way it can't be, because that those, those things are all too close together for them to be loose ends. Right. They have to be tied together. Okay. So, I don't know. Just to me, that's how that works. And I mean, but this is the thing. It's ambiguous. So, there are other interpretations, right? So, yeah. I'm not saying my interpretation's yeah. right. I'm I just mean, saying this is that's the, how the clues point This is me. the other thing about Stephen Moffat, is he knows exactly how to, not troll, but prey on people that look for clues. Yeah. Because he's a Sherlock, I mean, he's a Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> he's a Sherlock Holmes fan. So, he knows, mm. and I think he he does it playfully. So, I think he does... I think he does. He does sort of seed his series with or his stories with clues, and I think you can chart things and make connections. But he also knows how to throw something in that's that's possibly a clue or possibly not, because he knows that that's going to start conversations, and conversations are free marketing for a television series. Yeah. So any kind of arguments or debates or arguments online is sort of positive meat for for the series, and I think he knows how to just sort of throw them in and just kind of just kind of leave them there. Well I've got to say I wasn't looking for these things until afterwards and this was all retrospective yeah. adding them together for mm. me but yeah. But I know what you're saying. And so series six, well, we've kind of gone through it all recently, but let's very quickly run through the the it starts with the death of the doctor. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the series we know this is an attempt on his life by River Song. So we get uh, two things going on again. And this is the one series where it's not really... Because he's carried Amy over with still the same Doctor. So it's not like Rose and Nine and then Rose and Ten and then Martha and then Donna. So you've got the same companion and the same Doctor. So Amy's story gets told through Series 5. And basically, come the end of Series 5, Amy's story's finished. Because series five is the story of the Doctor messing her life up at the start and then repairing it to the point at which she can get married to Rory at the end happily. So the one perhaps unsatisfying thing about series six 
is he still carries on doing this thing about, oh, is Amy really in love with Rory or the Doctor? Mm. When we know she's in love with Rory, right? Mm. Mm. It's not in any doubt at that point. So those always felt a bit clumsy. Do you think? I think there's so many many comments in there that that are so ambiguous. There's some real moments in there where you you do second-guess yourself and you think, oh, hang on, this is all a bit strange. Yeah, but I think that's clumsy because I don't think it's ambiguous anymore. Mm. I think the comments are ambiguous, but I don't think the relationships are. No, no. So I, plus, at this point as well, the Doctor's River Song is a constant, well, not a constant, but she's a recurring mm. constant. But having said that, it's not, mm, yeah. I think it it's is. Amy, amb- Amy's feelings are ambiguous, I'm sure they are. I think it is ambiguous, but each time it's almost like an in joke. That you think she's talking about the doctor, yeah. yeah. And you think, it's, well, this, this is the time where she's definitely talking yeah. about the doctor, and always it turns, turns out, out to be, to be yeah. Rory, yeah. But that's more about for me. That's more about Rory than the doctor. Is it insecure? So the story is always about actually, Rory's building of confidence. You're right. That's the whole Amy Rory balance thing yeah. that's going on right the way through, where you know he's been the 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 Roman centurion who waited, yeah, and his yeah. his. Uh, stature in her view in her feelings mm. is changing and yeah. also the fact that her she as a person is changing so that's that big Amy arc that's going mm. on I, th- I adore which I think is one of the strongest things that's ever been in Doctor Who is the fact that she's this unlikable character mm. but she isn't she's a, she's almost an anti-hero in some respects isn't she you know there's so many people who say they don't like Amy's character and that's what the Doctor did to her mm. right at the start, isn't it? Mm. That's the psychological damage the Doctor did to her by turning up when she was a child and then disappearing when he said he'd come back. Mm. But I also like I also like Rory. I think Rory's the kind of the, the quiet companion. It's just like the development of his character is almost like a stealth arc storyline that mm. he does without you noticing. And he does it through his actions, but also the way that that Amy responds to him and through little little subtle bits of acting as well until I think by the time he by the, by the end the departure is sort of almost as much as his conclusion as mm, well it is mm. in the God complex it's almost explicitly Rory and the Doctor's conversation that causes the Doctor to drop them off isn't it mm. yeah I mean he doesn't actually say that but that's the thing in the script that triggers it. So mm. it's pretty much as, as explicit as it can be. Yeah. Yeah. As you say at the start, you know, the Doctor creates this Amy monster. Yeah. And she thinks the answer is the Doctor. And the but answer actually, isn't actually the Doctor, is it? It's, no, it's really Rory. Yeah. And it's when she gets Rory back that that happens. And this is it's a horrible word, but it's about agency. Because in Series 5, with things like Amy's Choice and the, the Silurians, so much of that is about... I mean, it was an in-joke that Rory kept on dying and Rory just had his actions taken away. So in Amy's choice, it really is about Amy's choice mm. because Rory has been evaporated halfway through the story. So this, after that, I think there's a conscious effort to to give Rory... Well, to stop yes, killing Rory. The joke is that he's dispensable. Yeah, when yeah. The, obviously the answer is that, no, he's absolutely he's vital. Central. Yeah, yeah. And the curious thing is, Rory is definitely a what's the expression I want Mary Sue for Stephen Moffat Rory is the way Stephen Moffat sees himself Mm. but also Rory is kind of a metaphor for the Doctor because he's the guy who keeps on getting knocked down 
and getting back up again. Yeah. yeah. And that happens to the Doctor every time he regenerates. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like Rory is this cipher character halfway between the author and the character. Well, that makes but sense. I mean, Not finding the Doctor, yeah. He's, he's the conscience of the story most of the time. He's also... He's also get ever more developing agency within the story, but he's also in a relationship with the person who at first glance is central and actually gets himself gets him involved in these stories, much as Stephen Moffat is married to the person who gets him production deals with But also the writer sees himself a lot of the time the writer sees himself as somebody without agency because mm. all of the characters do what he tells them to do. Mm. He's only telling them what to do because they're telling him that that's what they're capable of. Yeah. And so also the, a, yeah. a Doctor Who writer like Stephen Moffat is, is powerful to the point where he's got every Doctor Who writer before him and he's got the character of the series before him weighing down on him, but he's also got the fact that his words have to be interpreted by directors But also, because he's got all that history laid down behind him, that takes the power away because Mm. those are all rules he has to try and follow. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's he's this this irony that Stephen Moffat's the most powerful man in Doctor Who for the time that he's running it, but actually you can't run Doctor Who. Doctor Who runs you because because not only have you got the weight of the series behind you, you also know that somebody else is going to take it on. After you, and, and you're, you're answering. going to be retired, and it's going to be the biggest story. That and you're answering to the public, and you're answering yeah. to the corporation. I mean, it's a bit like being the American president, that presumably you think you're going to be the most powerful man in the world. But, but actually, actually yeah. you can quite easily be neutered, and you know that you're going to be replaced in, hopefully, four years. Um, With a bit of luck. Mm. And you're entirely yeah. dependent on... on the American the, public, yeah. on Congress, on the Senate. Yeah, yeah but he, equally, Stephen Moffat's clever in as much as he'll, he'll take some of those straws that have been placed there that, that kind of are the framework of Doctor Who mm. and makes them work for him. Yes, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. he, he just knows... I hope that Trump doesn't manage to do the same. Well, Stephen Moffat knows how to make it his own mm. within the constraints of the series without breaking the series. Mm. Um... Have we more to say on Series 6? Because just, we did just talk about He knows how to do that. Oh, God. And it's, it's distinct from Russell T. Davis because Russell T. Davis had a slightly different yeah, approach. role. Yeah. So Stephen Moffat's like the middle brother of a family. Mm. Stephen uh, Russell T. Davis didn't quite have the weight of the series behind him. He really was. Well, he was, he was allowed to, the first. He was allowed to reinvent it yeah. in his own image as much as he wanted or needed to yeah. do. He kind of edited it. Yes. He edited what what had yeah. gone before. So yeah. you know, let's get rid of Gallifrey. Let's do this. Yeah. Let's do that. You know, make him the last of the Time Lords. So in, in terms t- in terms of leaving a legacy, Russell T Davis had it slightly easier. I mean, he had a much more risky proposition because mm. he was the first. Mm. But he had and a blank slate. Yeah. yeah. But Stephen Moffat has managed to leave a legacy, and he inherited a successful series, which is a curse and a blessing. Mm. But the fact that he's managed to stamp a legacy on it. And he's reinforced a lot of those yeah. struts yeah. that are holding the whole thing together. And that's what producers in Doctor Who in the past, we we know this, the good producers because we talk about the Barry Letts years, we talk about the Philip Hitchcock years, we don't necessarily talk about the Peter Bryant years, 
or the the Ennis Lloyd years in quite the same way. <laughs> mm. And even Graham Williams maybe but not so much. Not so much. But we know that Hinchcliffe and Letts made a stamp mm. and and Russell T. Davis and Moffat have done a similar thing. Mm. Um we have not talked a lot about River Song. I think um, I think it's ambiguous. I think she was the person who blows up the TARDIS in series five. I think that's her first assassination attempt. Mm-hmm. Because and we talked about this when we talked about the episodes. I think she's a sleeper agent and she gets woken up. Um but then we discover that she's Amy and Rory's daughter. Does that make any sense? That she has certain Time Lord abilities because she was born in the or conceived in the Time Vortex. It doesn't really, does it? But it allows for an interesting story. And I think things that don't really make sense are kind of forgivable. It's, I think it's fine. You just, does it, does it relate to a lot of the uh, those early kind of Alan Moore comic strip stories of you know stories of Rassilon and things like that? And he was the first one to regenerate. And it's possible. I mean, it yes. relates in the sense that the time vortex is, by its nature, a mysterious mm. entity or place. Because we know that not all Gallifreyans regenerate, do they? No, so the yeah. time lords who regenerate. Yeah. 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 It's and, a time and the logical vortex. link would be that they have something to do with the time vortex. Well, and we've seen now that it's something that's bestowed on people. Mm. Yeah. That's been made explicit now. It's not been made explicit that that happens in all cases, but it's been made explicit that that happens. And we know that the TARDIS, because it's spoken about a lot, either bestows gifts on its occupants or it kind of invades its occupants. And in the new series, there have been times where... So when when I think it was Rose is told about the translation thing, she doesn't do a Sarah Jane who's just going, oh, that's interesting. She goes, the TARDIS has done something to my brain. Mm. The TARDIS has altered me in some way. Mm. So we know that travelling with the Doctor does, you know, physically alter you in much the same way that space travel irradiates you. And That's right, yeah. What was that? that? What was that in? That was... And of course, then you get um, Boomtown. No, there was a story, wasn't there, where... Oh, it was... Of course, it was Dalek, wasn't it? Where the Dalek regenerated itself. Right. Because of the hand. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Time yeah. energy. Yeah. And then in Boomtown... Margaret Passamere Day Slithine gets reverted back to well, an egg. Mm. From... And then Bad Wolf, Rose Tyler absorbs something through yeah. the TARDIS and becomes a god. So the idea that two people having sex on the TARDIS produce an offspring that could potentially be a little bit... Time lord Less than human. And it's, it's probably not the act of procreation. It's the, it's the development of the child. And it's the logical development of the things that Russell T. Davis was doing. Yeah. You'd, you'd imagine that if somebody became pregnant in outer space, mm. then there might be concern about the development of the child because of the radiation in the same way. It's that thing of things making sense within their own yeah. story frame, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Got to remain true to the story. Yeah. yeah. Wow, Sarah and Harry, that would have been interesting. <laughs> and they didn't really travel in the TARDIS that much, did they? Oh, they yeah. travelled. Are we going back to your fan? Yes. Are we back to your fanfic? Yeah. Just um, head canon. Oh, <laughs> well, Ian and Bob. I'm trying to think of the people that could conceivably have conceived in the in the TARDIS. Well, Ian, Bar- Ian, Ian, Ian and Barbara were definitely, definitely a couple. An item. An item. Yes. Yeah. But but in the 1960s, I mean, 
They weren't in the Victorian times. Oh, they were far too polite. Do you reckon? Yeah. Yeah, but behind closed doors. Oh, I don't know. The start of the Romans. Yeah, the Romans is pretty lascivious. I mean, it's like feeding each other grapes and making jokes about... Oh, right, okay. That's all pretty post-coital. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think if they might have been a bit too uptight at the start of An Unearthly Child, I think they've probably lost those inhibitions by the time you get to about the Reign of Terror. But there was a room for everything in that TARDIS. possibly the Hartnell TARDIS might not have been an, an environment for, like, Nookie. It's not like... I mean, imagine doing it with Hartnell like, yeah. in the next door room. Maybe the first and only time it happens is during that month they spend in Rome between yeah. the end of... Uh... When they're not on the tires. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe. Okay. Should we move on to Series 7? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> we seem to be talking a lot of sex in this episode, don't we? You started it. Uh, yeah, body functions in general. Yeah. Series 7... Um, the first half, of, let's leave Clara for a minute. The first half of Series 7, Moffat sets this up. These are going to be movie of the week adventures and there's not going to be a developing story arc. And to a large extent, he's kind of right in that. But something happens in the first half of Series 7 that kind of changes it a bit. At the end of Series 6, um, the Doctor's left Rory and Amy at home. And by the end of Series 6, he's not gone to pick them back up again. But by the start of Series 7, and this is after Doctor the Widow in the Wardrobe, where at the end of the episode, if you remember, he comes back and says, I miss you. So then in Series 7, there's occasional travelling. But then, (coughs) that was supposed to be four episodes, and it was supposed to be nine episodes in the second half. Hmm. And, um, well, something happened... And uh, a Chris Chibnall episode that would have been in the second half, except it wouldn't have been The Power of Three, turns up in the first half as The Power of Three, because Chibnall takes on an extra episode and then later on loses the one that he was already in to write. Mm -hmm. So you get two Chris Chibnall episodes in the first half, and he brings in Brian in the first of those, mm. and Brian was only supposed to be in that episode. So he was a one-episode character just for that one story, Dinosaurs on the Spaceship. Mm-hmm. But then, when Stephen Moffat says to him, we've got time to do one more episode if we can get it in the can quick for the first half, do you fancy writing me something quick? It's got to be simple. It must be modern-day Earth because we just don't have time to go off and do out of space or whatever or history or something so Chris Chibnall says okay how about this and Chris Chibnall and now that we've seen what Chris Chibnall's Doctor Who is going to look like we can see the roots of it in the sort of team building Chris Chibnall brings back Brian has an episode essentially set in Amy and Rory's home and the 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 non-arc that was going to be in the first half of Series 7, suddenly in that extra episode that wasn't supposed to be there, turns into a little arc. Because you suddenly get the thing where Amy and Rory say, OK, we're done travelling. Mm. We've had our fun. We're going to settle down now. And that's the episode where you go from, we're going to settle down now, to... Rory's dad saying, I can see why you do the things you do. I can see that you're doing good things. And essentially giving him his blessing. Mm. And that's the spur that makes them carry on. And that's the 
the character beat and the sort of arc beat that makes the end of the Angels in Manhattan, you know, gives it emotional resonance. Mm -hmm. So there's not really a story arc in the first half there, but that little extra episode turns it into sort of mini arc. But there's the massive Impossible Girl arc starts. Yes, but that's not a Series 7A story arc. That's a Series 7B story arc that just bleeds into the first episode of 7A, isn't it? Because, yes, that's why I said we'll come to Clara. But, yeah, there's no there's no arc exclusive to 7A in 7A, except for what happens in that episode. So then the movie of the week thing ostensibly carries on into 7B. Um, and before I get into Clara, um, yeah... <laughs> no, like Francois is on. <laughs> oh God, I hope not. But before we get to Clara, <laughs> I've got my head in my hands, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> before we get to Clara, um, he does this thing in series seven where he says it's going to be a movie of the week and the arc's not going to be throughout. But he had kind of already done that in series six. In series six, he throws you the ganger two-parter as a red herring about how things will resolve. Mm. But apart from the ganger two-parter being a red herring and, say, the pirates turning up in episode seven after they've been in episode three, Mm. essentially the pirate story, the doctor's wife, the ganger story, and the four episodes in between the Moffat episodes in the second half, that is essentially eight episodes in series six that are movies of the week because they don't really attach There's, to any of the story arcs. They attach in the same way that the Russell T. Davis... It's a Russell T. Davis story arc. Mm. It's got occasional glimpses of yeah. the little winks yeah. to the ongoing... And the occasional clumsy moments where the Doctor checks checks Amy's pregnancy on yeah, the, yeah. the, the TARDIS mm. computer again. But, yeah, so you've got, like, two seconds or mm. three seconds or something. Yeah. But even Russell T. Davis would do things like Satellite 5... And actually, those eight episodes, the non-Moffat ones in um, uh, Series 6, apart from the things that are appended to them, mm. like the scene at the end of the Ganger one where Amy melts. Yeah. So actually, that does make the Ganger one a bit more important. So let's mm. say six episodes that yeah. aren't arc-heavy. And apart from the bit that's appended to the end of the... at uh, the end of closing time, where you suddenly get a sort of prologue to Wedding of River Song. Mm. Apart from that, closing time has got nothing to do with the arc. So when he comes to Series 7 and says, let's do the movie of the week, he's kind of already been doing that in Series 6 because he is doing movie of the week in Series 7B in episodes like Cold War and The Crimson Horror and Hyde and what have you. But obviously in The Bells of... St. John, you've got to be introduced to this girl that you've already seen twice mm. to start a story about why she's dead but not dead. Mm. And then obviously the last episode has to resolve it. And then you've got little bits like in Hyde where the TARDIS doesn't like her. I think movie of the week is more than just... <laughs> there's a there's a distinction, but it's more than just it doesn't have a story arc. It's also the way that... The oh, no, but this is how pack- he sold packaged. it. Yeah, but it's the way that they're packaged. No, but when he introduced the concept of the movie of the week, he said yes. it will be arc-free. Arc-free, but I also think movie of the week means 
goes beyond that, so they're more conceptual. So oh, yeah, yeah. high concept, and also they're presented. So there was that, and then it possibly came out of him saying they were movie of the week, but they presented each with a stylized concept, movie yeah, poster. Yeah, yeah. So they're all branded as individual. I was just using that as shorthand to yeah. say arc free. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should have just said arc free. But, but almost that is, as ironically, an arc. <laughs> because, no, an because the thing that connects them is the fact that they're, the fact they're, they're, they're not narratively connected, but they're connected in the way that they're they're packaged. There are a few bits and pieces, though. Yeah, there's obviously because obviously, like I said, Bells of Saint John has to reintroduce this woman who you've seen die twice mm. in a way that sets her up as a mystery, and at the end, you have to resolve the mystery. But you've got in the Rings of Akaden, you learn the story of um, her parents. Yeah, which is. Not part of the mystery necessarily, but it's part of grounding that character in a way. Because the resolution to the mystery is that there's nothing special about Clara mm. until the point at which she jumps into the Doctor's time stream to try and save him. Mm. And that echoes back into the other Claras. So it's important at the start of Rings of Akaten to show that scene with her parents to show you that there's nothing special about her, mm. because that's that's not a clue as to how the mystery will resolve, but that is taking away one of the guesses that you can have. That's narrowing down uh, the sort of options for where the arc can go yeah. if you're following it and trying to keep up. So that's like, um, and like I always say, Stephen Moffat throws in lots of clues, and if you're following it, or even if you're retrospectively following it, you can work out which ones are important. I just think the scene at the start of Rings of Akaten is important in the arc in it being a definition of where the arc can't go. Hmm. So that when you get to the end, and it, it does turn out that she's just a normal girl, I think it then makes continues to make sense. Hmm. I mean, is there anything, apart from the L, so there's the bit in Hyde where the TARDIS doesn't like yeah. Clara... Uh, are there any other bits and pieces through there? I mean, I'm talking about the sci-fi part of the arc. I think there's a yes. lot of Clara stuff in Series 7B. People said that she had no character. But 7B, she starts off minding children. We get an episode in which she takes the children she's mining, minding on the trip. And it's patently obvious she's not doing this as a career. So when she becomes a teacher... That makes sense in terms of something that she'd do part-time mm. as she's learning her career. You also get, at the end of the first episode, when he says, do you want to come in the TARDIS with me? She says, yeah, okay, but come back at 7 o'clock tomorrow because I'm doing this on my terms. Mm. And she's like that throughout. She's the control freak. There's a moment in Cold Blood, which seems... Cold Blood? Um, cold Ice? No, what's it called? Yeah. Is it called Cold Ice? No, no. Cold War. Cold War. Yes. Yeah. God, why well, I think it's called Cold Ice. What a stupid name for a story that would be. In Cold War, there's a bit that looks out of character, but then turns out to be in character, where the Ice Warrior's tied up, and the Doctor says, you go and talk to him. Mm. And she says, what, me? You mm. want me to do that? But then as soon as he says, yeah, she turns around, and you can see the look on her face. She always wanted to and thought she was capable of, but she didn't realise she had permission to. Mm. And as soon as he gives her permission to do that, that gives her carte blanche 
to carry on doing the things she wants to do thereafter. In Nightmare and Silver, she's the one he leaves in charge of the army. So, you know, these are all examples of her character building up, taking this, I'm going to be in control of the situation I'm in, Mm. and then expanding that out so that she becomes a character who can be in control of other characters. And, of course, right at the start, she's already in control of other characters because she's in control of the children. And the story of 7B is the story of Clara going from being in control of children to where she can be in control of grown-ups. And she's in control of grown-ups in Nightmare and Silver. And then in Name of the Doctor, she gets the ultimate control because she's the one who goes into the Doctor's timeline and sorts it out. Mm. So there is a big character development there that's all going on. And it's it's all yeah. there on screen. And in Day of the Doctor, she's in control of yeah. the Doctors. Yes, yes. Three of them. And she, although she doesn't tell them what to do, she's the one who says to them, no, you can't do what you think yeah. you're going to do. Yeah. You have to think up something else hmm. yeah she develops right across those i think she suffers in comparison with amy because amy is such a big character and is is played in a very kind of overt way yeah by Karen yeah. Dinner, whereas jenna coleman's a more understated actress than Karen yeah, Gillen. yeah, mm. and the character is more understated. Hence, why some might feel that she was lacking in character because, yeah, yeah. in contrast, yeah, it's a subtle performance, isn't it? But I think at the time, and I liked, I liked Amy, and Amy is a character that's grown on me. But mm. at the time, I was quite relieved to have something, somebody who is more yeah. subtle, yeah, and oh, slightly yeah. quieter, more grounded, and yeah. looked as though she was thinking, thinking in between saying things or considering before she said something. Yeah, She's yeah, not yeah. the sort of character to just blurt something out. Whereas Amy is the kind of very yeah, much yeah. kind of kind of going for it. It pops in your head and it's yeah. out of your mouth. Yeah. Don't, Simon, don't. <clears throat> I mean it's a distinction also between Donna and Martha. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but Martha suffered slightly from not having a very developed character. <laughs> <laughs> um <clears throat> Well, and then we yeah. get to the day of the Doctor and time of the Doctor. Yes. And he does, in time of the... time. People looked at time of the Doctor and said this should have been the episode that wrapped up the Matt Smith years. Matt Smith was supposed to be staying on for a full series. Hmm. And then, well, I shan't go through the story on air of what's supposed to have happened behind the scenes, but then he didn't. And so... Stephen Moffat suddenly found himself with two episodes to wrap up the Matt Smith era, one of which was a 50th anniversary special, so of course he couldn't use that. So people were expecting, and I think this is why people don't like it, because they still expect it to be a story that wraps up story arcs, Mm. whereas I think Time of the Doctor is a story unto its own right Mm. in most respects. And the way it deals with the story arcs is it just throws in a couple of explanations for people who needed things explaining. So it's not about resolving the silence. The silence turn up for a Mm. few minutes, Mm. but it's not about the silence. And it's not about the exploding TARDIS and all these other things. These things get mentioned, but they're almost in passing in a story that's really about something else. And we all know it's really the story about who and what the Doctor is and a was, reaffirmation of that before he regenerates. It's what Stephen Moffat favours because we know from Twice Upon a Time yes. that 
that he favours the quieter exits for the Doctor. So it's not a kind of a Russell T. Davis destruction of the entire universe, the Time Lords come back moment of, of high drama. It's more a sort of a, a kind of a last moment of reflection before the Doctor kind of quietly peters out into the next one. Of course, the one thing we should talk about is Trenzalore. Mm. So Trenzalore is supposed to be the place where the Doctor dies. Right, this is going to get <clears throat> a little complicated. So Trenzalore is supposed to be, yeah, the grave of the Doctor. Mm. But by surviving that story, Trenzalore no longer is the grave of the Doctor. So when we come back to Trenzalore in the Christmas story, it's, Trenzalore is no longer the grave of the Doctor except now it looks like it probably is going to be. Going back to Clara going into the timelines, there's this question, oh, does she go into the timelines of the future Doctors too? But at the time of the name of the Doctor, those future Doctors haven't been created yet, so those timelines don't exist yet Mm -hmm. for her to go into. So surviving the name of the Doctor and having the new Doctors created in time of the Doctor kind of wipes out the name of the Doctor as well. There's a paradox. There's all, But there's also quite a neat dividing line between Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi, those two Doctors, because you've said this, that the Peter Capaldi Doctor is kind of a new Doctor. Yes, in yes. Because he's got a whole new regeneration cycle, and that's a kind of an unknown in Doctor Who, what that yeah, yeah, does yeah. for you. But we know from the Master, wanting one, it's almost like a fresh start. And so, it's conceivably, we don't know how much of a new character that is. It could be a completely new, new person. Well, we'll talk that about that next time when we created. do Capaldi. Yeah, yeah. but and that, Matt, that makes sense by how Capaldi performs in it and and how his Doctor develops, and that kind of extra bit of sort of post regenerative confusion. But going back to Matt Smith. Stephen Moffat very definitely uses time of the Doctor as a sort of full stop on Doctor Who. Mm. It yeah. comes to the, the 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 message at the end of the story is who is the Doctor? What has he done? Yeah. And you get that whole thing, and the the story revolves around that speech that Clara makes to the Time Lords. It doesn't matter what he's called because you know what he stands for and you know yeah. what he does, and that's who he is. And that's it, and obviously nobody. Yeah, everybody knew that's not where the series was ending. No. But actually, if the series had ended there and he yeah. had been the last Doctor, that's a nice place to end it. Mm. Because that's one of those, here's the end of our story, this is what our story's been around, been about, this is what our story's been about. And, um, well, here's a little and, window in case somebody takes up the story another time. And Trenzalore is the last resting place of the Doctor, in that in that, in that sense. sense. Yeah, so, yeah. In, the, in the sense, it's not wiped out, it is... He that that's kind of consistent, and also that's that's kind of also reinforced oddly by the conversation that Capaldi has with Matt Smith in the eleventh hour, because that's never happened before. That no. kind of a, a future Doctor telephoning <laughs> the original Doctor, but that kind of makes them two separate people. That doesn't make a connection, although they're talking to one another. That actually makes a disconnect between the two. Yes. Because you've got the impression of one person talking to another person mm. rather than just a continuum. Them being the same person. person, yeah, yeah. So it's sort of 
being handed over to a different person mm, mm. by somebody who knows that they're going to be buried in the TARDIS on Trenzalore. The paradox of the name of the Doctor is that once she's gone into the timelines and wiped all that out, she doesn't need to go into the timelines and wipe all that out. Mm. But this goes back to what I always say about time in Doctor Who, and especially in Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who, being like you laying a sheet of paper over another sheet of paper mm. so that what happened on the piece of paper underneath, you can't see it anymore. But that doesn't mean it's not there anymore. Yeah, mm. And that's how I think time works in Doctor Who. Mm. It's the it kind old, of self-heals time. Yeah, the old timeline doesn't get wiped out. It just gets made invisible. Mm. It gets um, overwritten. Okay. But, 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 but by overwriting something, that thing that you're overwriting needs to have been there in the first place. Otherwise, you couldn't overwrite it. Mm. So I don't think overwriting time makes time not have happened. I think it makes it unhappen, which is a very distinct thing in my mind. Mm. Um, anybody got anything more to say about Matt Smith? Or Apart from the fact that the arcs just literally go in whatever direction they want to, don't they? Mm. I mean, you've got that big, big kind of big exploding arc from Bad Wolf, where, where the actual epicenter of that is going all over the place, you know, in all time, much like yeah. Clara. But, um, but these arcs, if you were to... I almost imagine it visually, Stephen Moffat's arcs, you know, particularly River Song and people like that, and Amy, that they are literally kind of, what's what's that symbol you get in sheet music? Is it a... Oh, I don't know. It's like, it almost looks like an arc. Kind yeah, of like, where you want like the, bridge, the note to be. Yeah, possibly where you want the note to kind of carry on through yeah. to, to another one. Hmm. Um, They're like spider's webs. Yeah. It's like well, some of but, the... Some of the strands go this far, and some of the other strands go further. Yeah, and then there's other strands coming across. You can imagine marking well, over is, each other and creating. It's a... the act of a showrunner who has taken a series that's already a success, and has the confidence of being a bit more punk about mm. the way he writes things, and a bit more freeform and a bit more improvisational. Whereas Russell T. Davis, he clearly spent most of the '90s planning that first season of mm. Doctor Who. Mm. He'd, he'd come up with a structured, an organised structure for it, how mm. it would work. Mm. And then he carried on that sort of structural way of thinking about it. And he was never kind of freeform. I mean, he sort of came up with mad ideas within the story it, themselves. It, but I get the impression he didn't have room to breathe. You know, no, had no. To, he had to stick so that. So it's easy to, to be structured, whereas yeah. Stephen Moffat, well, Russell T. Davis comes up with a structure and then Stephen Moffat imprints himself on top of... So Stephen Moffat doesn't have to come up with a structure so he can take the structure back to pieces again mm. by sort of imprinting himself across the top of it. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it's got nothing to do with the arcs, but some of the things like split seasons and things like that, everybody always says, oh, Stephen Moffat, why has he split this season? But these mostly are things that came down from the BBC or had... External factors imposed upon him as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think the way it works has generally worked in the storytelling's favour. I don't think series six could have worked had it been thirteen episodes on the trot. I think he very definitely made a series that works in two halves, and obviously that's more than doubly true for series seven. Mm. The way that worked out. Um. Right. We'll talk about Peter Capaldi then next week or the week after maybe okay. when we get re- together and record it. 
But before we do, you've both been to see new films. I think we should do Simon's first. Mm, yeah, I went with the uh, went with the girls to see Incredibles 2. I made the mistake of going to a morning showing, thinking it would be quiet, and of course it was full of children. I've never known noise like it. You went to a morning showing of a kid's film during the summer holidays, oh, and you yeah. expected it to yeah, be quiet. I'm so naive. It's because I've got so used to going at like 11 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, yeah, yeah. and being one of only like five people in a cinema. I like the best, that's the best time show. to see Marvel films. Hmm. Um, yeah, Marvel films, go and see them at the 11pm. I wouldn't stay awake. I'm, you're lucky I've got my eyes open Take now. polos. Here's my... Take polos. Here what, is... What yeah. you wedge in between your eyelids. And when, when JR says polos, he means cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take so a packet of polos. And, drugs, and we've had rock and roll in this. No, in this, this always episode. works for me. Take a packet of polos and every time you feel your eyes just starting to droop a little bit, yeah. just take a polo, pop it in your mouth and start sucking it. Well, that's... They say you should take an apple, don't they? If you if you're driving over a long distance and oh, you're tired, yeah. I find polos does it for me, and I I would recommend everybody try that at the least, because when your eyelids are starting to droop, if you yeah. suddenly find yourself sucking on the mint, then your you're, body you're is doing to something. Podcast, yeah, you, you'll find me with my head lolled to one side, and I'll be whistling through the hole. Uh, anyway, anyway, yeah. But much, for people who don't know, much like Francois Rozon. Oh dear! <laughs> Does sound like a they might be giants song, doesn't it? Whistling through the hole. For people who don't know, what's The Incredibles all about? The Incredibles is a this scene. is me because I've not seen either. Of them. Oh, okay, right. It's way before the uh, the Marvel uh, Empire movie Empire started. Uh, it was Pixar's attempt at a super a successful attempt at a superhero movie. Incredibly, and for a long time, I did think, and I probably still do think, it's one of the strongest superhero films that have been made. But it's a, uh, a, a bunch of superheroes with a strong family content. So I was saying to Matt earlier, and I've said this loads of times, is I still feel it's the strongest Fantastic Four movie because there's a, not only are some of the powers very similar to the Fantastic Four, but the whole setup of them being a, a functional family is. Uh, but uh, it touches on things that, you know, years later, things like um, Civil War, Captain America, Winter Soldier and things like that have touched on this whole idea. I know, actually, no, which is an Avengers movie, isn't it? Yeah. But, are you but, talking about the, the registration? Yeah, of yeah, the regulation powers. of superheroes. So there's an X-Men thing as well. Yeah, so, yeah. you know... Uh, that was in the comics back in the 60s. Yeah. In the 60s it was. Wars, I think the 60s or 70s. Civil War was... The, 1990s was it? Oh really? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was older than that. Not that I'm aware of. But okay, it, but it would have been in the X Men before. Yes, three days. That's regulation of mutants. Yeah, yeah which yeah. is a more of a racism type yes, of thing, isn't yeah. it? But um, so you, you get the, the this vintage era. It's kind of a an ideal 1950s setting, and uh, the setup of the first film is that. Um, something happens with the superheroes where uh, somebody basically takes an insurance claim against the, the main character, Mr. Invi- um, Mr. Incredible, uh, because he saved his life when he was trying to kill himself. Kill himself. Right. So um, that, that's the back of it. And off the back of that, they start trying to regulate superheroes and in the end make them illegal. So they all go into hiding. So that's that's the setup for that one. Mm. But uh, Mr. Incredible is actually married to Elastigirl who was another superhero at the time. They've had children. Obviously, their offspring have got powers. Mm. So they've never actually been superheroes. 
And then there's a baby as well who, certainly in the first film, doesn't show any signs of being a, su- a super, they call them. Right. Um, and then a, a, a super villain comes along who tries to drag them out of hiding, you know. And um, I won't go into the story of the first one, but, you know, and, and it's just the relationships. And with any Pixar movie, this story is incredibly solid and it flows and there are surprises and there are twists. Um, and the whole thing ends up with them becoming a team as a family. Right, so when I said, tell me what The Incredibles is about, I was expecting you to say, well, it's a cartoon about superheroes. Okay. But then who am I to complain about somebody who talks too much? Tell us about The Incredibles 2. Incredibles 2 picks up exactly where the first one ended. Oh, does it? Yeah. Even though it's like 10 years. Well, so, yeah, yeah, no, but it just carries on. I don't know why, because everybody's saying this, and in every review I've heard, it says it's amazing, it just carries on straight straight on. Mm. I suppose that is. Well, yeah, it's logical as far as story, talk, but okay. when there's been that big, I mean, yeah. Brad Bird was never going to make the film unless he got the story right. Right. Yeah. Well, this goes back to what Stephen Moffat said about if you've got a two-part Doctor Who story, if the second part takes place immediately where the first part finishes, you've automatically got a disconnect from your audience because they've had 167 hours and 15 minutes in between. Mm. So, yeah, for a movie to do it after 10 years is a bit of a surprise, isn't right. it? Yeah, mm. I suppose so. I mean, it doesn't have to not. i tell you what, though. It's, but... there, isn't, there isn't a disconnect in as much as you watch Toy Story and then Toy Story 2... And there's a stylistic because the animation's improved, and there it's very subtle. There are very subtle differences. You know, some of the animation is that yeah. bit more refined. Yeah, yeah. But stylistically, it all looks the same. All the sets are the same, and and the way the characters are drawn, the the characters' voices you can hear a slight aging. In, right. But that's only because I pick yeah. up on these things. But story wise, it does something different again, which is far more appropriate for now. It's a really great story as far as now is concerned, um, and without giving too much away, the fact that for a good chunk of the film, the central character is Lastergirl. Pixar yeah. have got a really great way of doing this, of making children's films that are relevant sort of socially and politically. Mm. I did feel, sitting in a, in a room full of children, the first ten minutes, quarter of an hour of the film um, was quite, not slow, but very subtle and very good at i mean it was it was literally talking about a lot of the issues we're facing at the moment with feminism and uh um uh that how we are being monitored and how we are being regulated more and more i mean i did feel whether it's because i'm sensitive to it but it did feel like it was talking about the political situation now as well um which was really great and I was looking around at the children saying, are they picking up on this? And, you know, my my, my youngest, my seven-year-old, was shifting in her seat a little bit and sort of saying, how long is this film? You know, like that. Oh, really? Yeah, before the action kicked in. I mean, yeah, there was action from the off because it carried on from the fourth, but there was a lull as it set, then set, set the situation. Right. Um, but not a lull for anyone. For Certainly for an adult, it wasn't a lull. Right, because right. It, was, it was, you know... Um, but so what's the basic premise? I'm not spoiling anything. The basic premise is that somebody comes along uh, who says, whose father was a huge fan of superheroes, who says, I think it's time for the superheroes to come back. 
So uh, the basic premise is taking these people who've been sidelined mm. and, well, like saying, mm. right, okay, that's interesting from, from the start. And the reason why they, again, without going into too much, the reason why they pick out Elastigirl is that the, they make the joke that Mr. Mr. Incredible is a bit of a li- uh, liability because he's the big strong one. He's the he's essentially the she becomes like a poster girl. girl for a political exactly. Movement. But of course, you know, watching it and knowing the way things are at the moment, it's the perfect thing to to make the female character central. Mm. So she gets a new suit, which is duller. It's grey and right. shiny. So that's this is why I was saying to, again to Matt earlier: the first one is the best Fantastic Four movie, and the second one is the best DC movie <laughs> because because everything is really colourful and shiny. But they they make it modern by giving her a dark suit, yeah. a darker suit, right? And and she has loads of you know she's got an amazing motorcycle that she drives around on electric, of course. <laughs> so she goes, oh yeah, it's electric. She says, oh yeah, great talk, you know, and all this sort of thing. Um, it touches on so much stuff like that, you know, about electric power and looking for new power sources and things like that. But all this within like a 1950s mm. ideal superhero setting. Um, the script is amazing. The animation, of course, is incredible. And uh, yeah, absolutely loved it. It may be not uh, an instant hit like the first one is, but certainly far more to think about for this second one. So... You'd say you quite liked it. Oh yeah, I loved it. I loved it. You know, I, I would give it a ten out. Of, I'm thinking it's a nine out of ten because, but I think I want to see it again. So I'll give it a nine out of ten. Yeah. Okay, Matt, what have you been to see? Oh, um, I went to see Mission Impossible Fallout, um, which is the latest Mission Impossible film. I think it's the sixth. sixth the yeah. sixth now. Um, which you... has been. I was going to say, for all right, for anybody who doesn't know the Mission Impossible franchise, mm. or people will know what Mission Impossible is. I don't think we need to explain that. But the franchise. So the first one he did, Tom Cruise obviously is in it as Ethan Hunt. Yeah, and the the first one kind of deconstructs Mission Impossible a little bit. Yes. By taking the team to pieces. Well, it kills the team. Well, yeah. Spoiler, but that happens in the first five minutes. The second one is a John Woo action film and really yeah. sits at odds. Yeah. The third one is basically probably where the modern Mission the Impossible third, franchise the starts. The third one is where J.J. Abrams gets his claws into the franchise and starts to mould it and where Tom Cruise starts to have more involvement, I think. And since the third one, they've been made by Bad Robot, which is Tom yeah. Cruise and J.J. Abrams executive producing, essentially. Yes, yeah. Um, and oddly, Brad Bird then does the fourth the mm. fourth movie. Um, which was written by written Christopher, by Christopher McQuarrie. Who goes on to write and direct goes on five to and six. Write and direct, well, sort of write. <laughs> well, listening we'll to, get to, that, listening yes. to interviews with him. He sort of constructs them rather than writes them. Um, so five and six, uh, yeah, they so four, five, and six, three, four, five, and six, a kind of a kind of a new franchise, a franchise of themselves that start developing the story of Ethan Hunt. They bring back, start bringing back characters, and for five and six, they bring back the director for the first time. So. Christopher Quarry obviously gets on well with Tom Cruise. Um, 
he wasn't expecting to come back after the fifth one, but Tom Cruise and he starts having conversations. And the film the film is designed through a conversation with Tom Cruise about what Tom Cruise wants to do in terms of stunts. So the the since since the fourth film which featured Tom Cruise jumping out of the the hotel in Dubai, the tallest building in the world, yeah. and running down it. These films have been about how far Tom Cruise can go. Tom Cruise can go and in not terms, kill himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically. And Tom Cruise has become a stuntman. It's David it's, Blaine. It's got to the point where, yeah. It's I a mean, David Blaine show, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, except without the magic side of it. Tom mm. Cruise really does do these things. Um, so the sixth film, I mean, the plot doesn't really matter, um, but it involves... The, There's got to be a premise, because I don't know much about sex. I've pre- been avoiding all the, sort of the pre- talk of it. The really. premise is about um, is a secret group of international terrorists have got hold of three plutonium cores, cores of plutonium, yeah. and are wanting to do something with them. And Ethan Hunt and his team of secret agents want to stop them yeah, doing yeah, something. Yeah. Um, the The plot is... Ethan Hunt and his team have the chance of getting the plutonium right at the beginning, but Ethan Hunt makes a decision that means they lose the plutonium, but Simon Pegg survives. That's that's the kind of decis- the decision that sparks off this film. Damn and, it, wrong way around, right. And then through, throughout <laughs> the film, Ethan Hunt is forced into making ever-increasingly improvisational decisions to try and stop bad things from happening, including including involving the villain from the fifth film, who wasn't killed at the end of the fifth film, despite, despite the actor wanting to be killed off. They actually kept the character alive because the actor wanted to be, wanted to be killed off because he didn't want to do any, any more franchise movies. So they kept him alive on purpose in order to, in order to force the actor into being in the sixth film. Um, and so that's the general premise. And the plot, the plot twists and turns, and there are there are characters that double cross the others, and there are characters wearing masks that turn out to be other characters. Um, there's one brilliant scene of of, and this is a spoiler, but a fake CNN report about the nuclear explosions having happened, and then the CNN reporter, who's a real CNN journalist, then takes his face off, and it turns out to be Simon Pegg. And it's literally fake. That is literally CNN doing fake news, although they don't have the guts to actually use that as a gag. Um, but the plot doesn't matter. What matters is it's a sequence of stunts that Tom Cruise does himself. He rides a motorbike the wrong way through a freeway in Paris or along a motorway in Paris, and it's him, and the camera looks at his face and does it. He jumps off buildings, and it's him. The camera looks at it. He flies a helicopter and it's him on his own in a helicopter flying it. And that's Tom Cruise. He does a halo jump and it's Tom Cruise doing a halo jump. And the camera looks at him and it's, it's ever increasingly. It's, he did it something like 200 times so they could get the shots yeah, or something. Yeah. And so what, what for me this film is, is the attempt that at, the, at this point CGI has become so good that if you see a character on a motorbike driving the wrong way up a road in Paris, you assume it's a stuntman with Daniel Craig's face superimposed on stuntman, or you assume it's a stuntman in the scene from the yard. 
if they do a halo jump, you assume it's a stuntman or it's CGI, done in CGI. The, the whole point of this film is to try and it's to try and demonstrate that it's not it's not to use CGI as much as possible and to demonstrate as much as possible that it's not using C, CGI. Mm. And so the way it's shot, um, but also the way it's marketed. So all the interviews are about Tom Cruise, anecdotes about Tom Cruise doing his own stunts or forcing his co-stars to do his own stunts. Or James Corden. Or, or James Corden doing... Yeah, I've seen that. Um or it's about how Tom Cruise broke his ankle doing his own stunts. It's entirely about Tom Cruise's body, his physicality, his bravery. And it kind of works because you know that it's him because you've seen the promotional material, you've seen the interviews. You know you know that it's literally him putting his, not his life at danger, but putting himself into jeopardy. And so the stunts have a genuine edge behind them. And they're really well shot. Um, and the this story is... doesn't the story doesn't get in the way of it. The story quite adequately leads from one stunt to another. They've sort of become like the modern Bond movies, but the, yes, except the the well, the Bond movies are about the set pieces and Blofeld occasionally, right? Mm. They are, and and they're they're similar to modern Bond films in that the modern Bond films for a time were about authenticity. And about physicality, so certainly Casino Royale was about Daniel Craig's body. Yeah. And again, there were stories about Daniel Craig injuring himself on the set, proving that he's actually been doing things. And there's lots of shots of Daniel Craig running up a crane, albeit with a wire, so you can see it's Daniel Craig actually yeah, doing yeah. these things. Um, so there is a, there is a connection. I think it's a challenge. It's partly also a challenge to to the Bond films, and it's also Tom Cruise, I think, just putting everything on the table because Tom Cruise is now coming to the end of his action career because he has to be because he's mm. you know in his mid fifties, yeah. so he he's got to stop us at some point. He's just doing everything he can to get it out. And well, really Harrison important. Ford's about to make an Indiana Jones at the age of seventy-seven. And I'd, I'd imagine that stuntmen <laughs> would be involved in that. I don't think. I mean, but then again, Harrison Ford in the Star Wars films. A lot of the promotional material was about him breaking his leg and recovering. So yes, him breaking his leg is a story item, but the secondary effect of that is to make it clear that Harrison Ford is still running. <laughs> Although Harrison Ford broke his his leg running into a spaceship, Tom Cruise broke an ankle jumping between <laughs> jumping between buildings. So there is a sort of a like yeah, a, yes, a difference. Yes. So it was, it Harrison was Ford's leg got crushed, didn't it? By yeah, the, by the ramp. Yeah. Mm. Ouch. Pneumatic ramp. Yeah. But you can see, so they used the footage of Tom Cruise breaking his ankle in Mm. the film. They used the footage of Tom Cruise running running on his broken ankle towards the camera. And then... And then, obviously, then they they kind of... But reportedly, Christopher McQuarrie used the hiatus (laughs) from Tom Cruise breaking his ankle to work out how to end the film. Which is how these films are put together. If you listen to the interview with Christopher Corey, the films are made in such a terrifying way where they don't know how it's how it's going to end. They they're improvising scenes. They're actually making scenes right up to the wire, where it's it has to be done in one take with three cameras filming simultaneously, like 
Doctor Who was made. I'm assuming they've got some kind of continuity rule. You know, they can't introduce anything into the plot which is going to affect how the person well, appeared. So I, I think they just... Well, interestingly, there's a whole sequence um, set in... filmed in Norway or uh, filmed in New Zealand and they flew they flew one of the actors out there because they thought that she might be out there and they filmed some scenes with her in and they filmed it again with her, without her in to cover the mm. bases. Mm. So they had this actress out there as it turned out for no reason because they decided that she wasn't the character wasn't out there after all. No. So they covered their bases and they know and he knew that he was going to film pickup shots in London mm. so he arranged an entire set in New Zealand based on the idea to give himself wriggle room. It's like I'd imagine I imagine Stephen Moffat writing intelligently enough to cover his bases mm. if something happens. But intelligently enough to know what connects together. So it's, so it's interesting. And this is the guy that wrote The Usual Suspects. Yeah, that, if I don't think much of The Usual Suspects. It makes me think more highly of The Usual Suspects because it's clear that this guy, this guy has sort of a, uh, an improvisational intelligence rather than an intricate, intricate putting the pieces together. He's, he's got this kind of way of putting a movie together that's, that's sort of based around the cool locations he's got. I you wonder whether they, um, they uh, got him in on the Carrie Fisher shots. Of episode nine. That would be exactly the sort well, of person you'd need. Yeah. So, that, but I'd imagine that those, that 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 would be the same sort of filmmaking mm. that's been done here. Well, J.J. Abrams made that film from which they're taking those shots, mm. and he's co-writing the script for nine, or has co-written the script for nine. So presumably, he's the best guy anyway to work out mm. how to sort that stuff out. Yeah. Anyway, most oh, yeah. important question about Fallout is. Did you enjoy it? Yes. Are you going to give us a sort of flavour of beyond the fact that it's got lots of stunts in? Of did you enjoy the story for it? Uh, the the story, yeah, yes. I wasn't bored by it. Um, I wasn't watching it. I'm, I I think there were there's there's kind of cine literate touches which were quite pleasing. There was a nod to last year at Marion Bad at one point. I'm pretty sure. In, in Paris, which is a French art house film. Um, and there were touches to, to classic, classic American films, so point, point blank as well. Um, so there was enough in it for me to recognise, but also not to be bored. And the action sequences, obviously, they were really exciting and, and they were well filmed. So, yeah. I don't, I, it's not the sort of film where, where you get involved with the characters on a deeply personal basis because it's a Mission Impossible film. I'm constantly expecting Simon Pegg's character to be killed off, but I think they know that now, that all of these characters are essentially disposable, apart from Ving Rhames, who plays, who plays, um, who plays the computer expert who's been in it since the first film. He's still in it. And was he in the first one? Yeah, yeah. He was. He was supposed the to, replacement one or something. Uh, so he was. Um, it was. It was him, and it was Jean Reno, and yeah. Tom Cruise, and he was supposed to be um, the villain. But he pointed out that the black guys always turns out to be the villain, and Tom Cruise changed changed the story so that Reno John Reno the became the villain. And since then, they can't kill off. Luther Stickle, 
obstacle, stick it. They can't kill him off because because of that. Yeah, okay. So he's almost like the good luck token throughout all of yeah, these films. Yeah. And he's appeared in all of them in one capacity or another. So yeah, I liked it. Eight out of ten. All right then. So I was just, just very quickly, <laughs> you, you had a thread about uh, Indiana Jones on on your Facebook, thing. Mm-hmm. and somebody said, "Oh, surely they're going to kill off Indy in the next film." And I just wondered whether they're going to take the TV show into account because you saw him as an old man with an eye patch. Yeah. So we know he reaches old age, or are they going to ignore that the TV show? Um. I think he was just pointing out that you can't say for sure anymore. No. Because Disney have bought it, haven't they? And they've overwritten continuity from Star Wars, right? Yeah. Mm. Or non-screen continuity from Star Wars, because they've now folded the screen continuity in, haven't they? From TV. It's still George Lucas and Steven Spielberg at the helm, though, isn't it? I don't know, because Disney bought um, Raiders, uh, Indiana Jones, along with Star Wars. That's all. all It'll still be Spielberg, though. Mm. And I think they're making it because they don't need George Lucas's agreement mm. to come up with with a storyline. But I don't think they kill him. I don't think. I so. think they'll just retire they'll just, him somehow. Yeah, he's it an seems, archaeologist it seems, at the end of the day, isn't he? It seems silly to to, to kill because there's because Harrison Ford is returning his old characters in a series of films, and he and each time, spoiler. He gets killed. They've got to stop that eventually. Yeah, it's like Harrison Ford killing off his own characters, so he doesn't have to answer questions about when he's going to make another mm. X film. But I mean, by the time they get into production, he's going to be seventy-seven. He's, yeah, I think probably, it's seventy-six next birthday, and it's still a ways off. He probably won't make another yeah. film, but that doesn't necessarily mean that. Probably means they won't kill him off rather than they will. They just. At some point, the question's, when are you going to do another action movie? Yeah. Mr. 80 years old. Mm. Gotta stop, surely. Well, Sean Connery is still going just about, probably, actually, probably at Harrison Ford's age. That's probably about as far as Sean Connery went. He was in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He must have been... mm, I don't know. I think he was about 70. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Mm. He's got a... Yeah, he's probably about 15 years. I don't know. I don't know. Because it wasn't that much of an age difference between him and no. Harrison Ford in um, Last Crusade. Last Crusade. There wasn't enough for him to actually be his father. No. Yeah, I think it was like somewhere between ten and fifteen years, wasn't it? Last Crusade being, of course, the best Indiana Jones film. <laughs> well, we'll find out when I get to it. On Facebook. That was, that was, that was <laughs> interesting. Your thread was that there was somebody who thought each of the films was their favourite, wasn't there? Apart, yeah. Apart from Crystal Skull, but there was. Yeah. Well, and even Crystal Skull had somebody come in and say, it's not as bad as everybody says it is. So each one of the four films kind of had somebody there in the thread saying, well... But tell you what, I watched a bit of Howard the Duck today and that was absolutely dreadful. I've I've spent years wanting to watch it out of curiosity. Did George Lucas produce that? He directed it. He directed it as well, yes. Did he? I think so. Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't think he... Did he direct Willow? I don't think so. I think after Star Wars 77, mm. the next film he directs is Phantom Menace. Oh, okay. I think he's just producing all these things. I could be wrong. I'm yeah, no, that, that, would, that would explain... Well, no, it wouldn't explain a lot because who knows, but... Matt's looking it up. 
But even when he did the, what was the film about the planes called? Red. Red Tails. Red Tails. And people. (laughs) But when Red Tails came out, a lot of the promotion was, this is a new one from George Lucas after Star Wars. This is, you know, after the prequels. Mm, Next passion project. Yeah. Yeah. And then it turned out he didn't direct it. I think a lot of the time the promotion gives you the impression George Lucas is directing. Mm. Annoyingly, JR is correct. Mm, Of course. It was written by the legendary Willard Hoyke. Yeah, yeah. well, he was quite a big name in the 70s. Was he? Yeah. He wrote American Graffiti, oh. I think, if I'm not remem- remembering wrong. So a big name as a, not as a director, though. No, but I think he also directed. Well, obviously, but... I have the advantage of having Wikipedia at the moment. Okay, you're looking it, up Willard Hoyke? Yeah, it doesn't say anything else he directed. Oh, does it not? Well, he certainly... He directed four films. Okay. Messiah of Evil, French Postcards, Best Defence and Howard the Duck. Oh, right. No, he was definitely involved with Lucas before. His name's yeah, on he's... things that Lucas did. He created the screenplays for American Graffiti, Lucky Lady, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Radio Land Murders. Oh, there you go. So, yeah. American Graffiti, wasn't mm-hmm. right. mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there we go. Well, I'm surprising myself with my knowledge, yeah. God bless Wikipedia. It's, it's distinctly difficult viewing, I think. Yeah, I've yeah. heard some people defending it, but I don't. I can't. I don't know. And what, what I find really off-putting is that every time the duck looks straight at the camera, I think it looks like Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a non-recommendation for us to finish on, is it? Yeah, it's just appeared on Netflix. Yeah, if everyone's morbidly curious, it's on Netflix now. Yeah, I think morbidly curious is the word. We're up to almost two hours. Yeah. I think we'd better knock this well, one on the it's head. something for JR during his convalescence. It's no, I don't think it is. <clears throat> I think I might do the Mission Impossibles, though. Okay. Shame the latest one didn't come out a bit earlier, so I couldn't have got a Blu-ray of that in time. But I've got the other five, and I might do those, along with lots of other things. Anyway... Until next week, when likely we will be back to talk about Peter Capaldi. I was JR. I was Simon. I was Matt. And we'll speak again soon.